please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the book of Revelation. So we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 17 and verses 7 to 18. Revelation chapter 17, verses 7 to 18. And as you turn there, you may have recognized last week that as I read the end of verse 6, I didn't read the last sentence. And so we're going to read the last sentence with this week's text, but that was done for a purpose because that final sentence really goes together with verse 7, which is why I left it out last week and why we'll pick up with that last sentence of verse 6 this week as we look at Revelation chapter 17 and verses 7 to 18. So brothers and sisters, and please hear with me the reading of God's Word. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast." These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are people's, and multitudes, and nations, and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind, and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, last week we were introduced uh, to a new series of visions. And there we saw that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls comes to John and says to him, Come, 
I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on the many waters. And the intent there in those first six verses of chapter 17 was to show to John what the woman was guilty of. What the woman was guilty of. And so what the angel reveals to John was her nature. He reveals to John her character so that he can see for himself why God is going to come and is going to destroy this woman. And what did we see? God was going to come and destroy her because of her immoral influence over the world. Right? The woman, we said, represents or symbolizes the anti-Christian world, which is the center of seduction, just like a great prostitute. And that anti-Christian world of seduction is doing what? It is enticing people. It is alluring people. It is seducing people into forsaking Christ and following after the economic and religious system of this world. And in John's day, this enticement and these allurements were, were a very real problem. And if they did not comply, they would face severe persecution. And this is why Jesus himself addresses this as he has John write the seven letters to the seven churches. If you remember in chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days and you will have tribulation. Right? Why were they thrown into prison? For not compromising their faith. Right? For not figuratively drinking the cup of wine that all the other of their ungodly neighbors drank. And so now in jail, they're going to have a final opportunity to drink of that wine by denying Christ and confessing Caesar as Lord. You see, when Christians were thrown into prison in the end of the first century here, it wasn't like it is today to do a, a, couple, year, a couple year jail sentence and then be set free. They were put into prison, given one last opportunity to comply with state, or they were put to death. And Jesus knew this. He knew this would be their end, which is why he says right after that, be faithful unto death, and I will give to you the crown of life. But this is why then, brothers and sisters, as we ended last week, we've seen in the description of the woman that she is said to do what? She is described as being, being drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs. This is why that woman will be destroyed. Because she works hand in hand with the state and persecuting God's people. And now as a result, after seeing the nature and the character of this woman revealed to John, what does he now say? He says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now what I want us to understand is when he says that he marveled greatly, we aren't to understand that as, as he stood maybe in astonishment and in awe in a positive sense. As if he liked what he saw. But rather, we ought to think of John's marveling at the woman, much like Daniel's reaction was in Daniel chapter 4 when he was told of Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. If you remember there, that dream of that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was going to be chopped down and uprooted because of his sin. As, as he told Daniel that dream, what was Daniel's reaction to that? We were told he's dismayed and his thoughts alarmed him. Right? That was his reaction 
to this vision. And so we need to see that John, like Daniel, is in shock after he hears this vision revealed to him. And so fear has overcome him. He marvels as he sees the vision of this woman, probably thinking to himself, how can the church ever endure? How will we be able to make it to the end if if this is what we have to do battle with? But this is why then the angel responds, why do you marvel? Right? He's saying to, to John, there is no need to be frightened. Right? There is no need to be alarmed or, or shocked by what you see. He goes on to say, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And so now what we see after that, brothers and sisters, what follows is the angel here working to dispel all of of John's anxiety and worry and apprehension by unlocking the mystery of of what is going to happen with the church and all of her enemies as he interprets the vision before us this day. And so our first point this morning as we look at our text will be the beasts appearing. The beasts appearing. The angel is going to reveal to John in our text the manner in which the beast will appear. And this is really covered in verse 8. Now the first thing that I want us to see, brothers and sisters, is that the beast is going to mimic or parody the death and resurrection of Christ in His own appearing. If you remember back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, We are told this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Talking about Jesus. In verse 8, what do we read of our text today? The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise. So we see there that the the beast parodies. He tries to mimic Christ. Now, we've already seen that the beast represents not just a kingdom, but all rebellious kingdoms that persecute God's uh, people. The beast isn't any one kingdom. He is all kingdoms throughout history that stand in opposition to God. And if you remember, we got that from Revelation chapter 13. In in the description of the beast that comes forth from the bottomless pit, uh, he is described as being a a composite beast of not just one of the wicked kingdoms of, in Daniel 7, right, but he is a composite of all of the wicked kingdoms in Daniel 7. Right? He takes upon all of their characteristics, demonstrating to us that he is, he is trans-temporal in nature. Now, in the first century, Rome was the embodiment of this beast for, for John and for his hearers. And the beast does what? The beast serves... Satan's agenda. Right? Satan is behind the beast. And the, the beast goes about doing the will of Satan here on the earth. And so the beast is an extension of the devil. And so the beast's existence really coincides with the existence of Satan. Right? This is why the history of both of them is so interconnected. Right? In our text today, we're given the history of the beast. But in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1-10, to we're given the history of the devil. And if you look there, starting at verse 1, this is what we read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the devil, excuse me, and he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him in the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And so we see what? Satan existed. Then he was bound. He was not. And then only to be released for a short time in the future. So too is the beast. He was in verse 8. He is not and he is to come. So we see the, the parallel history of the two. But what we also see of the beast is this, that that pattern recycles over and over and over again of, of, of being and not being and, and being again and coming. Right? We see that with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Right? So we see the beast there. Right? We see the beast with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. We see the beast with Herod the Great. We see the beast with Nero and Domitian in their persecution of Christians. But all of them were cast down. They were for a time. They were not. And then the beast reappears. He he comes again. Robert Mounts, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, in this text says this, The beast down through history repeatedly comes up from the abyss to harass and if it were possible, to destroy the people of God. And so what we need to see going on in our text here is that the angel is showing John what is going to continue to persist until the coming of Christ. Right? This is the continual pattern of the beast throughout history until that one final battle where he gathers all the nations against Christ and His people and is destroyed. Right? But it's that going away and it's that reappearing then that, that will amaze people. Right? It will amaze the dwellers on the earth. They will, they will marvel at it. They will look at it with awe and with astonishment. Now remember that phrase, dwellers of the earth, is what? It's a, it's a phrase that John uses throughout the book to describe the ungodly. And so it's the ungodly men and women of the age that will look in awe and astonishment as the, the beast arises. Right? They fall under the spell of wicked rulers and wicked tyrants and wicked governments. They follow after them in blind obedience, right? deceived by their own sin. As one author comments, if you want one example of this, one needs only to think of the fanatical masses at the Nuremberg rallies in the early days of Hitler's Nazi Germany. He says, the, the feats of despotic empire builders who aspire to world dominion always evoke the wonder and worship of the citizens of Babylon the Great. And isn't that true? You see that played in over and over again throughout history with, with uh, rulers in, in all ages. Um, this was no different, brothers and sisters, than, than in John's time as well. You have the Jews who belong to the synagogue of Satan. You have uh, the unbelievers who worship pagan deities living amongst the Christians there. And both of them did what? They both conspired against Christians. They both served the government by turning over Christian to the Roman authorities. 
Is this not the same thing that we see going on today in, in Islamic countries? This is the very same thing we see played out repeatedly over and over and over again. But this is why John's message today we need to see was, was meant to be a comfort to the saints. It was meant to be a comfort not only though to the saints of the first century, but to the saints of even the, the 21st century. And that comfort that we all ought to receive, uh, I really want us to see, is, is twofold in nature. There are really two things that we ought to take away through this text. The first is this, that although the beast will go away and reappear, although he will try to mimic Christ in his death and resurrection, although the beast will get the support of the world right, to persecute God's people, what we need to see is that he will fail. Right? He will fail. The beast can pretend to be like Jesus. The beast can pretend to be sovereign over the earth. But he is not. Right? He is not. Jesus' death and resurrection secured his victory. And in that, he established his own universal reign and his only one true kingship over the earth. Right? Jesus, though, died once, didn't he? And he rose forevermore, never to die again. And He has all authority and power, both in heaven and in earth. The beast, what do we see? He keeps dying over and over again. He keeps dying and rising, which demonstrates what? He lacks the power that the true King has. He can't stop His dying and rising. He continually does it. And every time that the beast dies, where does He go? He goes into the bottomless pit. Let us see that the abode of the beast is not glory but disgrace. But let us also then take comfort in the fact that as the beast goes down into the abyss, there is coming a day in which he shall not arise from it again. As the angel says to John, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. And what? Go to destruction. Let us see that the beast will be defeated. Right? He, he will not win. And for he and for all who worship him and all of his allies, there is a place reserved for them to go when Christ returns and they are destroyed. If you remember back in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 25, as Jesus, we have the picture of Jesus returning at the final judgment. In verse 41, we read this, Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So I want us to see, brothers and sisters, that there isn't just an eternal fire that they will go to, but rather there is a prepared fire that all of the enemies of God will be sent to. Which means it is one that is certain. It is one that He has established. It is one that He has appointed. And I want us to see this as well. That that place that they are appointed to go to, that prepared fire, is outside of the banquet hall. It is outside the doors of the wedding feast. Those doors shall be shut to them. And only the bridegroom and the called and the chosen and the faithful who have received the invitation to come shall be there. The second then comfort that I want us to see is this. That although we experience suffering 
And although we experience persecution and we know that there is a place reserved for the ungodly, let us know, brothers and sisters, that as we endure all these things, there too is a place reserved for you and I. There is likewise a place reserved for you and I. Look at John chapter 14 with me, please. Look at John chapter 14. We'll look at starting in verse 1 together. John chapter 14, starting in, in verse 1. This is what we read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may also be. Let us see, brothers and sisters, that Christ entered the heavenly places as our forerunner. Right, to secure the heavenly places for His people by His blood and by His sacrifice. Securing this place is our dwelling place when we depart this earth. The angel then also tells us that the dwellers of the earth who, who worship the beast are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, which also ought to be a comfort to the saints. Why? Because what it means is that the opposite is true, doesn't it? That those who do not worship the beast, but rather who worship and serve Christ only, are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the fact that it is written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world tells us what? That it is not of your doing. If your name is there, it is of God's doing. And if it is of God's doing, does God make any mistake? No. And so if your name, brothers and sisters, are are etched into the book of life by the finger of the Almighty, then there is nothing that anyone can do to erase that name away. It is permanently there forever. He made you His bride and as a good husband then He will protect you until He welcomes you home. So we can know that our eternal destiny is safe. We can live without fear in the world knowing that everyone that Christ came to redeem, everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life shall walk through the gates of the heavenly city and dwell with Christ forever. This leads us then to our second point this morning then that I want us to look at, which is the beast's reign. The beast's reign. The angel told John how he was going to appear. Now he reveals to John how he will reign. And it begins in verse 9 with this, where he says to John, this calls for a mind of Wisdom. Right? This calls for a mind of wisdom. Now, this is not a phrase that is often used in Scripture. It's not a phrase often used in the book of Revelation. And so when it is used, what do you think it means? It means this is difficult. Right? This is going to be something difficult to understand. Right? We've seen this one other place in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13 Right? It was said, this calls for wisdom. 
in understanding the number of the beast. And so it says to us that this is going to take some thought. But what we need to understand, as we pointed out before, it takes spiritual thinking, doesn't it? It takes spiritual thinking. It takes spiritual discernment. We saw that with that number 666. Right? If, if all he was calling them to do was to connect the 666 with the corresponding letters in the alphabet, that doesn't take much wisdom, does it? To figure out someone's name. Right? But understanding, though, the spiritual meaning behind the 666 does, doesn't it? That takes spiritual wisdom. Right? Understanding its meaning, that takes true wisdom. That is something that not every eye can see, both natural and spiritual. Right? He is calling only for those who have spiritual eyes. This is only something that you can see. Now here then the angel says we need a mind of wisdom to discern what? First, the description of the seven heads as seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now let me ask you this. If I went around and I asked anybody here, anyone in the United States for that matter, uh, I have a, a question for you and I would like you to, to guess. Guess the answer. If I say I'm going to the Windy City, where am I going? And everyone would shout, Chicago! Right? Everyone would know. Would I have to tell that person before I said that, this takes a mind of wisdom. This takes a mind of wisdom. I'm going to the, to the Windy City. Where do you think I'm going? It doesn't take a mind of wisdom. That's easy, isn't it? And so I say that because of this. Just as the Windy City in the 21st century is synonymous with Chicago, so too in the first century was the seven mountains synonymous with Rome. Everyone would have knew it, believer and unbeliever alike. It takes no wisdom to know that. As one commentator states, there's little doubt that any first century person hearing this, believer or unbeliever, would not have identified the seven heads that are the seven mountains that the woman is sitting on with Rome. Everyone knew it. And so we know that we're not to stop there and say that's the answer. That takes no wisdom. But what does take wisdom? Understanding the meaning behind the mountains. What does the seven mountains mean? Think about mountains in the Old Testament. Think about the mountains of the Old Testament. What, what, what do they mean? Remember that the book of Revelation is what? It's a divine commentary on the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, when mountains are used quite often, what is it symbolic of? Well, let's think of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. In Jeremiah 51, verse 25 of Babylon, God says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord which destroys the whole earth. And so, mountains are symbolic of what? Of rule, of power, of kingdoms. Kingdoms like Babylon and kingdoms like Rome. But the fact that there are seven of them in a book where the number seven is being used symbolically over and over and over again, it ought to tell us something about those seven mountains, shouldn't it? This method of interpretation 
is then the same thing that we want to use as we look at verses 10 and 11. Right? We want to interpret the symbols in Scripture with Scripture. Not looking to history books, not looking to the news. We interpret the symbols of Scripture with Scripture. And so we, what are we told in verses 10 and 11? We're told that the seven heads are also seven kings, five of who have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Now here, what people oftentimes try to do when they're, when they're looking back at history and trying to make the Scripture fit history is they'll, they'll look at the emperors, right? The, the rulers of that, of that day, they'll say, well, who's ruling now? He must be the sixth. Let's, let's count backwards, count forwards to figure this out. To, to, to figure out who the, who the angel is trying to reveal to us here. But all of those lists are, are, are pretty arbitrary lists because you, you have to exclude historical emperors to get to the man that you want to, it to be. And so we have to see that we don't have to go through all that trouble if we simply look at the text with spiritual eyes to understand what the spiritual vision and the spiritual symbols are trying to reveal to us. Right? We look to Scripture to draw out our conclusions. And so in both cases, right, seven mountains, kingdoms, and seven kings. Think back to Daniel 7. What were the kings symbolic of? Kingdoms. Right? The four kings were four kingdoms. So you have the seven mountains and the seven kings, which are kingdoms, but what does seven symbolize throughout the book of throughout this book and scripture? Completeness, right? Totality, fullness. So what the angel is showing to John is how over the history the beast has been active throughout the whole world. Right? Seven stands for completeness or the totality of the reign of the anti-Christian governing powers throughout the world. And this is just being revealed to John. This is what we're going to have to deal with until the return of Christ. Right? That is what he is revealing to him. But he also tells him the time is short. The time is short. The time is near. This is why he says five of the kings have already fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does, he will remain a while. Again, all that means is the, is the war is getting close to the end. Out of the seven kings, five are already done. The message he's trying to convey is the end is near. Right? It is, it is fast approaching. And it will come to a close when the eighth king comes to reign. Because at that time, it will go to destruction. So what I want us to really see here, brothers and sisters, in the, in the description that the angel is giving us, is he is describing for us the exact same thing we just read about in chapter 16. Right? He is describing the gathering by the beast of all the nations at the battle of Armageddon. Because what happens right after Armageddon? They go to destruction. This is describing the exact same thing you read about in Revelation chapter 20. Right? What happens there? After Satan is released, after the thousand years, he deceives the nations and does what? Gathers them for one final battle, and then what happens? They go to destruction. But I want us to see that the vision doesn't end there. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me, please. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. 
Ten is the number of what? Like seven, the number of completion. Fullness. The Ten Commandments. Complete. Full summary. Right? Of the moral law of God. This is why the number ten was used to the church of Samaria. You're going to spend ten days in tribulation. You're going to experience the completeness, the, the fullness, the totality of the tribulation that I have appointed you to experience. And so here we have, we have the ten horns and the ten kings, which then what we need to see represent the subordinate powers that are going to support the beast. Right? That is what they are. Every industry, every sphere in this world, in society, will serve the beast and join forces with it. Right? The beast will have at some point all subordinate powers behind it helping him persecute God's people. But let us see that it will only last an hour, he says. Now, are we to think that's a literal hour? No. All that means is it's going to happen for a short time in comparison to all the other suffering that you have had to endure. But look at verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of Lord and King of Kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see that verse 14 in this vision ought to help us get through all things. Right? It ought to help us to get through everything. Knowing that although the, the whole world will come together against us, that Christ will always be for us. And Christ will always be fighting on our side. And that He will prevail against the world. Right? He will conquer them on that great day of His wrath. But I want us to see that does not mean that the beast and the dragon and all of his allies have free reign now. Right? Even now, I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that, that Christ now prevails upon His enemies. Even now, even today. How does He do that? He prevails upon His enemies through the proclamation of the Gospel. He prevails upon His enemies through the salvation of the elect. Every time a sinner is brought into the fold, that is another blow struck to the kingdom of the devil. And so I want us to see that there is nothing that the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the woman, or anyone else can do to, to stop God's plan. And one day He will prevail upon the world in a magnificent and way that is open to the eyes of all as He gathers His enemies before Him, casting them into eternal darkness once and for all. This is why, brothers and sisters, it's so important to heed the warning of the psalmist in Psalm 2. Why it's so important, not only for us as individuals, but for leaders and governments and world powers to heed what the psalmist says here in Psalm 2, verses 10-12. to There he says, Now therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all you who take refuge in Him. You see, brothers and sisters, the whole world is being called to serve the one true King. Not to serve culture or kingdoms or rulers 
or any idol. We're all called to serve the one true living God. And for only those who have come to faith and repentance and have kissed the Son, it is only they who shall stand with Him as He defeats all evil spiritual powers. This is why, though, brothers and sisters, He can say at the end of verse 12, Blessed are all of you who take refuge in Him. Why is that? Well, you're blessed, brothers and sisters, because when Christ returns, you will not feel the fury and the wrath of the Son. You are blessed, Christian, for when Christ returns, salvation will be yours. You are blessed because when Christ returns in His flaming vengeance, it will not fall upon you. You will be swept away to safety and comfort and security. This leads us then to our, our third and our final point which is the beast destruction of the woman. The beast destruction of the woman. We have seen how the reign of the beast shall not last forever. Right? It will be cut down. He will be cast into eternal darkness. But here, under our third and our final point, we see how God makes those in rebellion against Him do His very will here on earth. Right? This is what we see, that He is the sovereign Lord who is in control of all things. He is even in control of wicked men and causing them to destroy their own wickedness. That is what God is doing. And He does it in order to accomplish His plan to the praise and to the glory of His name. Right In verse 15 we read, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Right, that is describing the, the woman's Immoral influence over every tribe, tongue, nation, people. Right? And we said last week that what does the woman do? She, she woos the inhabitants of the earth with the promise of what? Economic prosperity and security. But we see that all of those who get into bed with her, all of those who love the woman will one day do what? They will turn on her and they will destroy her and they will devour her. Why? Hatred. Jealousy, all things that make people turn on one another. Perhaps also because they find out that the promise she has made, she does not deliver on. And so they turn on her and they, and they devour her. But I want us to see ultimately though, what is the reason that they turn on her and devour her? Because ultimately the reason that they destroy the woman is because of God. It's because of God. Look at verse 17 once more with me. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God who decreed the beginning from the end has ordained all things that fall out in the world. And here we see God's wisdom on display as He causes Satan to rise up against Himself. He causes Satan to rise up and to attack and make war with his own followers. Right? Satan's army, brothers and sisters, see, is a, is a self-defeating army. And it is God who controls it all. This is why in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 21, we read this. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Right? There is no peace. This is why, brothers and sisters, though, seeing... Behind the curtain, 
as the angel gives us a peek behind that curtain and seeing God orchestrate all things, although it causes angst and worry in the unbeliever, ought to stoke peace within the heart of the saint, shouldn't it? Right? The wicked have no peace. Why? Because they have no share in Christ. Right? But the believer has peace because we have a share in Christ. In the blood of Christ. And that blood of Christ has done what? It has brought peace of conscience with us. That we stand in peace before God. Right? The wicked have no peace. They have no idea what's going on in the world. They have no idea what their purpose is. They have no idea what will happen to them when they die. We do for our sovereign and all-wise God has revealed it to us. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in our victory. That no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Right? For by faith we look to and lay hold to the promises of God. Looking all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Understanding that although the serpent bruised the heel of Christ, that Christ has crushed the head of the serpent. And even today now, Christ causes His people to, to tread upon the head of the serpent even today. Let us then rejoice in the wisdom of God, brothers and sisters. His wisdom has been laid from before the foundation of the world. Let us sit back and enjoy it unfold in human history. Let us also, brothers and sisters, and rejoice in God's sovereignty, which is contrasted with the sovereignty of the woman. In, in verse 18, the woman has sovereignty, we're told, over the kings of the earth as her economic sway and influence extends to them as well. But what do they do? They turn to destroy her. They turn to devour her. And so we see that she is not sovereign. Only our God is truly sovereign. He knows all things. And He always does what is right and what is best. Let us see His ways. How He has the, the world right devour and bring down one another. But what does He do to His people? What does He do for the church? He established us to do what? To build one another up. Right? Unlike the beast who is a false Christ, the true Christ doesn't devour His bride, but rather He cares for her. He loves her. He empowers her. He upholds her. He protects her. And so brothers and sisters, may that cause us to walk in all humility before our Lord, recognizing that if the Sovereign Lord did not set up His kingdom in our heart, we would be just like this wicked world. Right, following after the woman to our own destruction. Lastly then, I call upon us all to marvel at the infinite power of our God. Right, marvel at the power of Him. May it cause us to admire Him greatly. And may it bring great consolation to those who love the Gospel, seeing that the Lord of lords and the King of kings is able to make people who live their whole lives not wanting to do His will, do His will. And so, brothers and sisters, let us trust in Him. No matter what evil arises, know that even in that, God is working out all things for your good. So do not fear, for the time is short and Christ is coming. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the glorious truths of Your Word. We ask, Lord, that You would uh, cause Your Word today to comfort our hearts to make us abandon all anxiety and worry. May we be consoled by Your words. May they be a great encouragement to us. May we look to Your Gospel promise whenever we are worried, recognizing, Lord, that You have conquered our every enemy and that there is a place 
that you have gone to prepare for us and you have promised to come return for us and bring us there. May we continue to set our eyes upon that heavenly dwelling. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.